0: Mark chapter 11. We're going to be specifically looking at verses 20 to 25. But we need to make sure we have the rest of the context. We've already had a sermon on the cursing of the fig tree. But we're going to read that text again. That begins in Mark chapter 11, verse 12. Let's read together. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. This is speaking of Jesus. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. We're going to be skipping verses 15 through 19 and pick up with 20. This is the rest of that story. And they passed by in the morning. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. I want to begin this morning with a question. Have you ever desired to experience the power of God in your life? Have you prayed that God would use you? I mean, use you in in a mighty way. Use your life in a mighty way in a powerful way that might bring him glory. I already heard a few yeses. I've seen seen some head shakes, nodding up and down. When we look at God's mighty works in the scriptures, we see that God powerfully, powerfully worked in and through his people in the Old Testament, through the Israelites. We think of people like Noah, who in faith built an ark, who had never seen rain, trusting that God was going to flood the earth. We think of Abraham and the promises that God gives him to trust in him for a descendant when he had none. He didn't even have a child. And God says, I will make your descendants as many as the stars as much as the sand on the seashore Think of Joshua marching around the city called Jericho with walls, with the instructions that they are simply to march for seven days on the seventh day to blow their trumpets. And that would be the path to victory. Think of David, a young shepherd boy who goes to visit his brothers who are encamped against the enemy, the Philistines. And he sees David taunting God's army. And he goes into battle with a slingshot. When we read the stories of scriptures, it's so clear that God worked powerfully, powerfully, amazingly, impossibly in the lives of those we see in scripture. But what about us? What about you, what about me? What about river of life? Does God intend to work powerfully in us in the same way that we read about in the scriptures? We might be inclined to think that God worked powerfully in the life of Jesus. Yeah, we understand that. But let's be honest. Is there not a hint of doubt that God will work in your life in the same way? If you've been in church or if you've been at River of Life, and I I know you probably have correct theology, you would say that with God all things are possible. But I'm talking not specifically about your theology. I'm talking about you on a practical level in your daily life. Do you expect God to work powerfully in and through you in everyday life? So today as we study God's word, we look at Mark eleven twenty 20 through 25. We're going to see that Jesus teaches his disciples in no uncertain terms that it's God's desire to use them to display His power. In fact, Jesus is so bold that he teaches that anyone can be used to display God's power. Are you interested in knowing how? That's the right answer. So in part two of our study on the fig tree, Jesus teaches his disciples to expect God to powerfully work in their lives. And he's going to give us three requirements that enable the power of God in heaven to be displayed in and through his people here on earth. Now, before we launch into these three requirements, we need to do a quick check on this interpretation of this passage. We need to make sure that we're understanding God's word correctly. If you are familiar with the, the modern church and the current church culture, there are many ways of mishandling God's word. There's many ways of, of teaching a gospel that is all about us, and we often call it the health and wealth gospel. It's called a prosperity gospel. And there's many ways that we can go astray when we begin reading every passage of God's Word about only things that God wants to give to me, only things that God wants to do in blessing me, only always wanting to see God's power, meaning that God answers whatever, whenever, if I pray in faith. And so before we begin our sermon today, I want to make sure, and I want you to check me, is this the interpretation that we should have with this passage? In fact, I don't know if you recognize this, but your role as you come to church is to make sure that the words that are being preached from this pulpit are the very words of God and faithfully interpreted. You are not passive. And in fact, any church should not tolerate a pastor who would stand up and preach anything other than God's truth. And so before we begin to talk about how God desires to use us in a mighty way, I want first to show you why this is the correct interpretation. Everybody understand and everybody on board? So how do we know this is God's desire to use us to display his power? That's a great question. I want us to look at what we call a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 21. A parallel passage, if if you are new to church or new to the scriptures, we have four different stories of the life of Jesus. We call these the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four gospels. These are four accounts of Jesus' story. Oftentimes, so right now, we've been preaching systematically through the book of Mark, but we have what we call parallel passages, where the very same story is told in another book. And we need to look at Matthew, because Matthew is going to help us understand why we should interpret this passage to mean that God desires to display his power in us. So open to Matthew 21, verses 18 to 22. This is the very same account, it's the very same story of the fig tree, and in verse 20 it says, we're picking up midway, when the disciples saw it, this is, this is meaning when they saw that the fig tree was cursed and had withered, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And here is Jesus' response. And Jesus answered them and said, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, notice these next words, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive it, if you have faith. Now let's just unpack this verse for a second, or these verses. Peter and the other disciples are astonished that the fact that when Jesus cursed this fig tree, immediately, they they notice, in, in, in the Matthew account, Matthew stacks them together. He doesn't let us know, as Mark does, that it's the next day the disciples see the tree. But when they see the tree, they're astonished. And they ask this specific question, how did the fig tree wither at once? Keep in mind who's asking this question. These are the 12 disciples who have seen miracle after miracle after miracle. But something about this miracle fascinates them. We don't know exactly why. One thing I can tell you, this is the only recorded destructive miracle of Jesus. Every other miracle is giving life. Maybe this is what fascinates them. And Jesus has already shown his power over nature, remember when they were in the boat and Jesus calms the storm? But they look at this withered fig tree and they have the question. And the question seems to be, "How do you call down the power of God to do these things on earth? How did the wither how did the fig tree wither?" And here's what I want us to see. Because how Jesus answers actually doesn't answer their question. Jesus launches into a lesson. Jesus could have simply answered how he did it because that seems the most obvious question. Jesus, how do you do these things? How is it that you, in your relationship with God, see the power of God move in your life so that when you cursed a fig tree, it withered from the bottom and died? And you would expect Jesus to maybe explain, well, here's how it works. Here's how I do it. I, I, I. You, could, you expect Jesus to focus on how he and God relate. And he doesn't. What Jesus moves to is not how he performs miracles. But instead, Jesus teaches them that if they have faith, They will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but their faith can move mountains. They asked Jesus how he did this. Jesus' response to them is, here's how you will do it. Now, just to give you a little context, one thing the disciples don't know, but we know together. Jesus is preparing his disciples. He is no longer going to be living with them, ministering to them in the same way that he has for the last three years. And their ministry is going to move on without the presence of Jesus doing all of these miracles in their midst. There's going to be a season coming up where they're going to need to know how is it that we continue on in this ministry that Jesus has given to us in the same kind of power, in the same kind of trust, serving the same God as Father. And Jesus teaches us this lesson. We can't be unaware that Jesus is preparing for his disciples for his departure. And how to continue on his ministry with the Father. So, with confidence, we should understand the lesson of the fig tree to be this God can and will work powerfully through them. That's the disciples. In the very same way that God worked through Jesus in the cursing of the fig tree, God can and will work powerfully through them in the very same way that God worked through Jesus and the cursing of the fig tree. Now let's move to the three requirements. We're going to move back to Mark because I wanted to at least lay a foundation, especially when we talk about such an important topic, that we avoid error, but that we take God seriously at his word when he makes these kind of astounding promises. So requirement number one, we're back in Mark chapter 11. We're going to look at verse 22. Requirement one, faith in God. Let me read verses 22 and 23 again for you. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Have faith in God. I mean, just break this down. First and foremost, you need to see this. This is not an invitation. Jesus' words here are a command to his disciples. That's what we call an imperative. Jesus begins this teaching lesson with a command to his disciples who have watched him the last three years. First thing, have faith in God. A direct command from Jesus to the men who have followed him. Think about this. If you were in the army and you had a commander or leader, that leader is to give commands and the troops are to enact those commands. Jesus is talking to his disciples not as a bunch of friends. Jesus is talking to them as the one who has invited them to follow him and his first words to them are, Have faith in God. If you notice in verse 23, if you're familiar with scriptures, the very next thing that Jesus says is, Truly. A truly statement is always a a uh, a pause in the conversation that Jesus gives to to signify to his disciples what I'm about to tell you next is very significant. Now, all of that, all of the three years that Jesus was preaching and teaching with his disciples, everything he told them was true. So when Jesus, on top of that, tells them a truly or basically What Jesus is saying is, know with certainty. That's what, when Jesus qualifies something by saying truly or truly, truly, what Jesus would be saying in an English equivalent was, know with certainty. And what's the next thing that Jesus says? What comes after that is going to be a foundational truth that every disciple should know and every disciple should live out. It's going to be a foundational truth that you need to build your life on. If you are going to be a disciple, you need to know and act on this principle in life. And what comes after the truly is, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Next thing I want you to see in this verse is Jesus moves, Not too specific language, but he moves to the statement says, Whoever? Who is excluded in the word whoever? No one. This is mind bending because we would think God would only choose to work mightily through the greatest faith, the greatest Christians. And Jesus says, whoever, anyone. So not just Jesus' disciples, but immediately Jesus says, "Here's a tr- I'm giving you a command, have faith in God, I'm giving you a truly statement, and then he moves straight to whoever. Anyone who will follow Jesus' truth that he's giving here will be able to see God working powerfully. Now, we need to unwrap this saying about say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. Because what does this mean? Because I want to tell you the truth. If this means that literally we will call on mountains and throw them into the sea, it's never been done. And that would make a mockery. Of the Christian faith. In fact, this is a text that atheists specifically point to and said, if you truly believe, and none of you must, because you show me the mountain that was taken up and thrown into the sea. But you know why? Because you there is no God that exists, or the God that you believe in is so impotent that he can't. So we need to understand this phrase. Here's what you need to know. This phrase is a metaphor that's often used in Jesus' time. And a mountain in Jewish imagery signified a strong or immovable object. It was a great problem that could not be solved. And Jesus is teaching an incredible truth. That in life we will come face to face with mountains that only God can move. I gave you several examples earlier. Noah, he built a boat for a rain that God promised that he could not control. No matter how much faith Noah might have, there's no way he can make it rain. He can make it rain. There's no way he can make a flood. Abram and Sarah had no children. Physically impossible for them to have children in their old age, and God gives a promise. There's only one way that promise gets fulfilled. God. In your life, there are mountains that only God can move. And this is the idea behind the Jewish phrase. Is that when we, in life, when we come to these mountains that only God can move, there's only one way that we can move forward. And that is that we place our faith in a God who is able to move mountains for us. With us, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. And Jesus is teaching his disciples almost a truth too big to believe. This is audacious faith. He's inviting his disciples to believe God for the incredible in what is humanly impossible. Let that sink in for a second because I know that we all want to protect good theology and we will move to making sure we understand what this doesn't mean in the next verse. But just let it sink in for a second. The incredible promise that Jesus is making here. Don't lower it. Jesus is saying is that the greatest possible difficulties can be removed when a person chooses to trust in God and allow God to work for him or her. Let me give you an example of this. I've mentioned it already several times, but I've mentioned about Noah. I've mentioned about Joshua. David killed a giant, but I want specifically to look at Abram and Sarah. In Genesis 22, Abram and Sarah are given this promise that God will make a great nation out of them. The thing you need to know about Abram and Sarah is that they're in their 90s. Sarah is even older, close to 100. Their bodies, as the scriptures say, are dead. You can't reproduce. Sarah was past the age of burying children because she was no longer menstruating. And apparently, even when she was menstruating, they never had a child. And now they're at 90. Basically, the good life is already gone. They're at the end of their life. So how profound that God would make a promise that says, I will give you more descendants than the stars if you can count them. You tell me if that's not an incredible promise. You tell me if that's not impossible. And here is what the scriptures say in Romans 4, 18 to 21, that I want us to see. Here is how Abram and Sarah held that promise. Because I promise you, by the way, their faith wasn't perfect. Remember, they laughed. Sarah was heard laughing when she heard this news. She laughed. And you and I doubt. It says in Romans 18, In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. And when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God. And listen to verse 21. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. You want to know what faith does? It takes God at his word. You are not the one exercising amazing faith. You simply believe God at his word. You believe in a God who does great things for his people. Ephesians 3.20 teaches us, it says, God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or we could think according to his power at work within us. Whose power? God's. Who does? God. What's our part? Faith. And I already told you that faith is not reserved for only the most mature, for only the most godly. Jesus says, whoever, whoever will choose to walk in faith in God's promises can see God work through them powerfully. So here's the summary. If I were to look at this, in our own day and age, Jesus talking to his disciples, guys, you see that tree? You see that withered tree over there? Here's what you need to understand. God is able to do beyond your capacity to even imagine. Imagine. God is able to do for you what is humanly impossible. If you trust in God, if you have faith, you will see firsthand what God can do. You will see firsthand how God can provide. And you will see firsthand how God can work for those who trust his character and promises. The first point of application for today, if the the first requirement was to have faith, Let me just invite you right where you're at. I want you to apply this to your life because I don't know what mountains there are to move, but you do. Be fully convinced that God will work powerfully to fulfill his promises to you. That's what faith is. If you want to know what faith is, faith is being fully convinced, fully persuaded that God will work to fulfill his promises to you. Let's look at requirement number two, prayer. In verse 24, it says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Now, I told you before I wanted the astounding, incredible promises that God was making or Jesus was, was teaching his disciples to sink in. But here I want to stop and I want to make two very important clarifications. Because I want you to know what this verse is saying and I want you to know what this verse is not saying. Because there is always a danger of taking God's word and making it say what we want it to say. So let me tell you what God's word is saying Immediately in verse 24, we see a connection. So Jesus commands them to have faith. And then he says, see there's this connecting word, therefore I tell you. So we see immediately that faith, when it moves to action, moves to prayer. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. So we see that faith and prayer are intimately connected. Our faith in God and specifically our faith in his promises should lead us to boldly approach God and asking him exactly for what he's promised in his word. What this verse is saying is that God does intend for us to come boldly to ask him for our needs and to ask him to work powerfully, to ask him to move mountains. Let me give you a verse that really makes this clear. Matthew 7 Verses 7 through 11, this is a passage that you probably know quite well. But notice the the emphasis on us coming to God to ask. Verse 7 says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks you for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask of Him? Folks, God gives good things to those who ask of Him. Faith is putting into practice the very things that God has promised, but also the way that God says that we, uh, we see God work to give us those things, which is prayer, We don't don't call God's power down from heaven in our own strength. We go to God in prayer. We are not the one who wields the power. And we don't go to God because we have such amazing, great faith. We go to God because he's given such great promises. And therefore, we put them into practice, trusting and believing those things. There's an old hymn, a Scottish hymn. It says this. I love these verses. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. Since his grace and power are such, you can never ask too much. You're going before a king. You're going before the one who is sovereign over all things. You're going before the God who doesn't have a restriction on his resources, you're going to a God who has all wisdom. You should not go with small request to that God, but to ask him for all that he has promised to be for you in Christ, to ask God for all the wisdom that he has promised to give, to ask God for all the provision that he has promised to give. Let me give you a quick summary All of heaven's resources are available to the Christian who prays. All of heaven's resources, all that God promises to be for you in Jesus Christ is available to you through prayer. I don't know if you were a kid and you ever dreamed about having a superpower. If you want to know, do we have a superpower? None of us have a superpower, but we have something that's even better than a superpower. We have prayer to the one who has all power. When we're kids, we think, of what if we could fly? What if I had all the money? Who cares? What if you had the ear of the Father in heaven who has all things and who has promised to work mightily for you? That's a superpower that every single one possesses. Nobody of us has a corner on the market. Nobody has more of God's ear. Every single one of you, because of Jesus Christ, has the opportunity to go to God in prayer, and that's what God invites you to do. God says, ask, seek, and knock. Here's the application. Boldly pray in faith, asking God for what he has promised. What are the good gifts? What are the promises that you are forfeiting today because you are not going to God in prayer? Now, I want to look at the other side because we need to make sure we know what this verse is not saying. This verse is not saying that God will answer any prayer I ask as long as I have enough faith. That's putting the emphasis on your faith. That is faith in faith. It is not faith in God. Let me prove that to you. Let me show you why this verse is not saying, if you have big enough faith to ask anything, God will do it. That is the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that I told you, that we need to be very careful that we do not move into in this sermon. Because that is not what we believe. But at the same time, we do want to believe what Jesus specifically said to his disciples. And so we have to hold both in in our hands this morning. Let me give you three specific verses. This is not Sam's opinion. This is God's scripture. What this verse is not saying is that we will receive anything we ask. Why? First, we have to ask according to God's will. 1 John 5:14 and 15, it says this. This is the confidence we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So the first thing is according to his will. He hears us. And we know, listen to how similar the language is, we know that if he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we will have the request that we have asked of him. But we need to have the same perspective that Jesus had. We have confidence in God's power, we have confidence in God's ability, but we have submission to his perfect will. Secondly, that we are to abide in Jesus, and that means keeping his commandments. John fifteen seven through 11 says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, that's the, that's the prerequisite, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. He later in verse 10 says, he defines abiding by this, If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. Okay, so the second requirement that we have is that we abide in Jesus and keep his commands. Lastly, we can ask wrongly. James 4.3 says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Folks, we are not imperfect and we are not all wise. And there are times where we, we go to God in great faith asking for things that we feel that God is is wanting us to have. But James makes clear, you ask because you ask, or you don't have it because you ask wrongly. There's wrong motives. We all struggle with that. None of our hearts are perfectly pure. It has been well said that the purpose of prayer is not to get man's will done in heaven, but to get God's will done on earth. And that is something we need to keep in focus here. God's desire is not to accomplish our will. If we pray in faith that God will accomplish our will, no, it's the reverse. We pray in faith in God's promises, trusting. This is the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Whose will is, are we praying about? God's will being done. So ultimately... And we ask boldly, but we submit our will to the Lord. Here's another great quote it says, Those who trust God for the right things in the right way may have confidence that God will always make the right response. Those who trust God for the right things in the right way may have confidence that God will always make the right response. Let's look at our third requirement. This is to forgive. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that uh, if you have, excuse me, and whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Notice this first word here, when, ever to say whenever basically means as often as you pray forgive that's a pretty high standard and let me just ask you in the times where you take quiet time throughout whether it's daily or throughout the day are you constantly looking to forgive others as god forgave you if we're honest A lot of our focus is on us, on our needs. And as we come to the Lord, we constantly come harboring things against others. None of us go through a day without others doing, thinking, saying, acting out something that is hurtful to us. Like none of you go through, maybe you have the perfect day. Maybe, that, that's it. There, maybe there was a day in your week where you're like, man, it was, just, it was all roses. Everything happened was good. If that happened, praise God. But I know in normal life, we kind of rub each other like sandpaper. All of us are imperfect. All of us sin. Even those we love the most, our spouse, our children, our families, we know we say things and do things that tend to hurt one another. And here's how Jesus ends. His third requirement is that we forgive. And he says, whenever, so as often as we pray, forgive those who have sinned against you. And then he gives the reason. Why? And it says, there's a so that in this verse. So it's the reason, it's the because. Why should we forgive others? Because it says, so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Let me give you an example. Peter has a question in Matthew 18, 21 to 22. Remember this famous conversation? Peter comes up and he says, Lord, how often shall I forgive my brother who sins against me? Peter says what he thinks is an amazing amount of times and showing amazing mercy towards somebody else. He says, seven times? What's Jesus' response? You guys know this. What was Jesus' response? Yeah, depending on your translation, either 70 times seven or 77 times, either version or either way, what Jesus is saying is you don't stop forgiving others. Here's why. Because God never stops forgiving you. Which one of us doesn't need God's forgiveness on a daily basis? Which one of us is perfect and following God's will, which one of us lives each and every day in in perfect humility, without pride, and, and showing unconditional love? None of us make that test. And so daily we need to go and ask God for forgiveness. And do you know how often God forgives you? Every single time. Let me just tell you, there's sins in my life that have been much more than seventy-seven times, and I'm so thankful that that's not the limit. And I'm so thankful it's not 70 times 7. I already did math in here once and that was a mistake. But I think that's 490 times. So here's what God asks you to do. The third requirement for seeing God work powerfully in your life is this. Forgive others whenever you pray. And here's why. Because there is a direct relationship between your, your relationship with the Father and how you forgive others. And let's just be honest. Because if you've been in church for any amount of time, here's the truth. Some of us are carrying anger and bitterness towards others that needed to be let go a long, long time ago. It should have been let go the day it happened, and you're carrying it around like a weapon, and it's poisoning your heart, and it's poisoning this church And we need to forgive. When? You don't have to wait till they come to you. You won't be fully reconciled when they come. But here's what God tells you to do. You forgive them whenever you come to pray. If there is someone who's done something to you before they've even come and asked for forgiveness, you start forgiving them. Why? Because it sets your heart free from the prison of sin. It sets your heart free from the poison of bitterness. So the last application is this. In summary, let me just say, we can say with certainty that God's ability and God's willingness to work powerfully in our lives is hindered by an unforgiving heart. God's desire to work powerfully in your life is hindered by an unforgiving heart. Here's the application. As often as you pray, forgive others in the very same way, God has forgiven you. Is there anybody that you need to forgive today? Three requirements to see God work powerfully in your life. Have faith, pray, forgive. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, your word is powerful and it speaks the truth. Transform our hearts by the power of your spirit to trust and believe the things that you have said. Amen.